Hey, it's your girl Rajette Speaks with Narrative Shifts, where we redefine and we reframe the narratives that go out about us. And tonight, a wonderful guest, his name is Derek Jackson. He is the Director of Community Engagement uh, for the Washtenaw County um, Sheriff's Department. He's also a social worker. He has MSW behind his name, which is pretty cool. And um, yeah, he's an officer as well. So he's in the field. You know, so we're going to have some really good conversation. I believe some rich conversation for you, the audience. Um, and by all means, I'm trying to manage a few different uh, things over here. So you'll see me look off to the side. Guys, go ahead and comment. When I get to it, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to respond. Um, anybody who wants to manage the chat, should we, uh, should anybody <laughs> watching, uh, that would be very helpful. But anyway, welcome to the show again. Um, Derek, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, who you are professionally, maybe academically, uh, go ahead and share with us a little bit. Yeah, I, so I always start by saying I'm a social worker who became a police officer. And of course, whenever I say that, I get that look sometimes like, mm, what exactly does that mean and why? Um, so I'm a social worker who now gets to help run a police agency. And so I think I have a pretty unique job and perspective um, as a director of community engagement, I really get to sit in that in-between community and law enforcement. And so most of what my day job is, is about constructing all these mechanisms to uh, build a sense of community between law enforcement and the community they serve. So I get to use basically social work and social work theory and infuse it with criminal justice theory. Um, so it's pretty exciting wow. to me. Um, and, you know, I, especially in these more recent years, uh, with all the stuff that's been going on around the country, um, you know, some people can say like, that's a pretty tough job or how'd you get into that? I feel like it's like, it was the right time for me to kind of be in this role. So mm -hmm. yes, I'm an officer. I think it's an honorable profession. I love what I get a chance to do, but also taking that social work lens and infusing it with that. Um, I think it's just pretty cool. The stuff I get to do every day. I think that is fantastic. As someone who just, I love social work and just all the different, um, lanes that, that social workers can be in. I think that is mm -hmm. powerful you've chosen that lane um and i'm even going to say it probably chose you right like <laughs> chose mm -hmm. that lane to really focus um your 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 energies on you know i think that's i think that's fantastic um i guess for me i what what sort of led you into the law enforcement side of things it's mm. a great question. And, and I, you know, I never wanted to, I didn't grow up being wanting to be a police officer, like lots of officers or people that I know now. I was like, yeah, I've always wanted to be a police officer. Right. That, that wasn't me. Right. I grew up an angster uh, and we didn't have the best relationship with police. So it wasn't that, um, you know, I was just working with kids. I was working um, in the community that I live in. I worked with homeless teenagers. So a lot of times I was working with kids who were having interaction with police. Um, we even had a uh, death of a man from my neighborhood in my neighborhood at the hands of the very agency that I work at. And so back in the day, you know, I was in the streets um, marching and protesting. Um, and the opportunity came up where Jerry Clayton, who's the new sheriff now, he was running for sheriff. And uh, he just came to me asking questions around, hey, you're this community guy who does all this work in the neighborhood. Um what would it look like to you if we did community work through a law enforcement agency? And quite honestly, mm -hmm. Rajat, when he first asked me, I was like, dude, get out of here. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. I, I just couldn't see it. Right. I didn't have that vision. But he started, you know, kind of talking to me about all the things you want to do. Imagine if we could get law enforcement or the agency to do the things that you think it should do. And I was intrigued by it. Um, and so now, 13 years later, um, I'm here and that's what I do every single day. I think that's amazing. Um 
I'm curious to know, and I mean, you, you can chat more about this, but are there other law enforcement agencies that have an internal social worker or someone mm. who is sort of in that same role that you are? Is that, is that common in, in police departments or not so much? I wouldn't say it was common, although I do think it's increasingly more and more you have it in, but there's a difference. I would say, um, and I don't say this to be braggadocious. I just say that um, if you look at our agency and a lot of police agency is hierarchical, right? It's about right. the chain of command. And so um, there's the sheriff, under sheriff, and then there's directors and commanders. So I get to sit at the highest level of the organization. Mm. And um, again, I say that because I think it really speaks to the value of our agency, not to just have the social worker that can uh, respond out um, to a particular incident, which is needed, mm -hmm. but to have a social work mindset at the administrative level to make some of those, I think, key policy decisions, mm. uh, thinking about um, the mission and the values of the agency at all levels of the organization. Um, so it's that social work mindset involved in all facets of law enforcement that I mm -hmm. think is fairly unique to our agency, okay. but you do see a lot more social workers getting involved, not just in police work, but in the criminal justice system. I have a good friend who was the first social worker in Michigan to be hired in the public defender's office. Wow. So now you have social workers working in public defense. Um, and so increasingly more and more you see social workers going into that realm. That's fantastic. Um, your undergraduate work, was this in criminal justice or what was your, did I miss that earlier? <laughs> no, no, no. So my okay. undergrad, you know what? So again, being from Inkster, I always yeah. had this vision. I'm going to be a social worker. I want to go back to my neighborhood, to my community. I want to help folks. Right. And it wasn't anything related to criminal justice. It was really just how do I make my neighborhood and community better? Okay. Um, and so I thought for me, the best way to do that was working with kids. So again, I, when I first came out of college, I was working with homeless kids mm -hmm. um, at a place called Ozone House here in Washington County. Oh, yeah. I did do an internship, though. My internship while I was in grad school at U of M was um, at Maxi Training School, which was a corrections yeah. institution yeah. For, for young people, violent offenders. So I learned a lot there, but I never saw yeah. myself really working in kind of criminal justice field at all. So now that wasn't necessarily it. I, I will say this. As a social worker, you know, we often care about the most vulnerable populations. Right. And now looking back on it, I tell a lot of social workers this, the most vulnerable of the vulnerable populations are already in the criminal justice system. So if you care mm -hmm. about people who are mm -hmm. in recovery or who are in active addiction or who are homeless or who are struggling with education or all these other or mental health um, the most vulnerable of those populations are in jails, prisons, or involved in the criminal justice system. So like as a social worker, like we're really implored and pulled into mm. doing this work. We had just never thought about it. Um, but mm. in Washtenaw County, I say this all the time, the biggest um, mental health institution is the county jail. Shouldn't be that way, but that's just the way that it is. And in most jails around the country, that's the case. Like you have jails full of people who are struggling with mental health and mental illness, so it makes sense that social workers would intervene and intersect there. So then with that, you are going into um, the different, well, Washtenaw County Jail, for instance, and you are functioning in a clinical way. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Or maybe not you specifically, but social workers are, are partnered in that way. Yeah. So for me, I get to operate in all facets of the sheriff's office. So whether it's road patrol, the jail, community work, and I'll just say it this way. So if you're a social worker um, and you're thinking about working in the jail, mm -hmm. traditionally, traditionally, jails would ask certain questions, right? Like you might ask, you know, who's there at the jail and how long have they been there? But as a social work mindset, one of the first data points I wanted to look at was, all right, who are those people that keep coming back over and over and over? And when we ask that question, 
just a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Those people who came six or more times or 11 or more times, like imagine going to jail 11 or more times. If you had gone to jail 11 or more times, you're not a violent offender, right? Because if you were violent, mm-hmm. you would have been in prison already. But if right. you're in jail, there's something else there. And just asking that question of like, wait a minute, what is it about the folks who come back 11 times? And when you look at it, Rajat, you were talking about folks who were homeless and coming back for petty crimes or who were addicted. And so they were committing petty crimes and they were coming in and out all the time. Yeah. So when you ask that question from a social work lens and you're thinking about the jail, now you can say, all right, clearly the jail is not the place for these folks, right? What is it that we could be doing to help them stay out of jail? And some people sometimes will say, well, that's like that hug a thug stuff, right? Like, I'm not about helping folks, right? Like, lock them up, throw away the key. Well, here's the thing. That means if they keep coming back to the jail 11 times, uh, yeah, they're not good at being criminals, right? They keep getting caught. But they're victimizing people. That means they get out, they victimize someone, they come back in. And so even for folks who are really, like, hard on crime, Mm -hmm. um, I think it makes sense to say, well, if you help folks stay out of jail, you can really help folks not be victimized in the community. So I think there's a way to speak to all sides of the issue. I, I think that's pretty brilliant. Um, and I just wrote something down. And so we're going to, we're going to talk about this and I'm just curious. And I know because you sit in such a unique space, uh, I know you might have certain liberties to speak about certain things and, and, and mm-hmm. not in another lane. Um, but to what you just said, let's talk about, this whole idea or concept or even practiced in certain areas now um, called defund the police. Mm-hmm. So um, I just heard you say, you know, from the social uh, social work lens that you are having conversations with, okay, how can we, you know, minimize these folks coming back? What, what are <clears throat> some of the reasons that they keep returning? Um, to that point, in terms of putting certain resources in place or uh, providing certain tools for folks that are maybe repeat offenders and this kind of thing, what are your thoughts on defund the police looking from the social work lens? Mm-hmm. Well, so I'll, I'll just say this first before we get into that. Sure. You know, um, I feel like sometimes I'm sitting in the middle and I hear the community say something, law enforcement say something, and they're saying the same things, but speaking different languages. Right. So mm-hmm. when a lot of times when people um, when law enforcement hears defund the police, they think anti-police or um, when um, officers are talking and they're talking about, well, I'm, run, I'm going from call to call to call, you know, community members here where they don't care about my neighborhood. Well, actually, they're saying the same things. Mm-hmm. So why is an officer running from mental health call to mental health call to mental health call? And mm-hmm. the community wants the right people, the experts to be called in for that mental health call. They're saying the same things, but in very different ways. So our number one call for service to, to like a particular house in the neighborhood Um, overwhelmingly is a mental health call. So someone who's in crisis and we go back to that house over and over and over. Now we've begun to train our deputies better, but we all know that um, that's not really the best person to be responding to a mental health call, right? You need a mental health professional. Mm -hmm. So you can have officers who might triage it, make sure it's safe, but you need folks who can actually get in there and deal with the crisis. And that's what officers are asking too. So Mm -hmm. when you say defund the police, sometimes people take it as a negative. It doesn't have to be a negative. For us, it's really about just getting the right resource, the right community responder, whether that community responder be a police officer, be a social worker, be a peer worker, just getting the right community responder to that individual to help them the best way. So for me, that's when I hear when I hear defund, I think what people are really saying is like we want the right people who treat our folks right in the community, um, but to be the right resource 
for what the person needs. Arresting someone is not what a person in a mental health crisis needs. It's not. Mm -hmm. I think officers know that too. Um, and again, sometimes it just feels like we're speaking different languages, but um, really I think we're all talking about the same thing. So as far as the Washtenaw um, uh, Sheriff's Department, are you guys more aligned to, and, and I don't want to necessarily use the phrase to fund the police, but it's the one that everyone yeah. knows, right? Yep. Are you guys in alignment with um, trying to sort of re reallocate those resources and this kinds of thing um, to make sure that you can get a reduction of maybe multiple calls or multiple mm -hmm. Uh, when you're showing up multiple times at someone's location, are you guys kind of in that framework or, or building something out or, or not? Yep. And so that's the part of what my job is, right, is to kind of be the architect um, to kind of co-construct some of these things. I'll, I'll just say it's, it's complex, right? So we mm -hmm. like to often kind of pit human services versus law enforcement. I would say it's not an either or, right? You can do both. So mm -hmm. I'll give you a couple of examples. So here in Washtenaw County, we're the only county in Michigan that has passed a public safety and mental health millage. It's a, it's a joint millage. Um, and so the voters two years ago overwhelmingly passed it and they basically built up both systems, gave money to law enforcement to specifically be better at diversion, deflection and dealing with mental health stuff, but also gave money to the mental health professionals to build up those systems. Wow. So I, so I know some uh, communities are saying, hey, we got to take from police to give to mental health. Not necessarily do you have to do that. Um, now, there are some things, though, that need to shift, right? Like you you need, need to look at budgets and stuff like that. But I think it's much more complex than just take a dollar from here and give a dollar to that. Okay. Thank you for that. That's great information. Um, so I used to live in Washtenaw County. Everybody does yeah. that. <laughs> um, most people know because I went to Michigan. But I actually, beyond that, moved back, I guess, gosh, it's maybe seven years ago now, six, seven years ago now, um, when I was there. And so I had the opportunity, you know, you, you called me up or, or sent some kind of message my way mm -hmm. um, to be a part of focus groups that you were doing um, that involved community policing and, and law enforcement. And I remember just being really intrigued by what work you guys were doing at that time, having the opportunity to sit at a table of, at that time, I think before we broke into the groups, you know, I was just, I was there with all of these police officers and just kind of wondering like, wow, you know, what, what is everybody thinking, whether it was a tense situation for the community members, or if it was just kind of a rolling my eyes situation, you know, for maybe a police officer, I didn't know what I was going to be um, exposed to on that day. And I remember it being pretty profound for me, and it's something that I've thought about, you know, since then. Um, how often, first of all, talk a little bit about that focus group mm -hmm. and, that course, and then how often you guys are having conversations with the community. So, again, a part of what I think um, what we've tried to do is not just have uh, like a, a police officer who's really good at talking to the community and like have a special unit and like send them to a neighborhood watch meeting. We do that stuff, mm -hmm. but that we didn't want it to be just that we wanted to be a way that we, a philosophy, a way we think about the work that we do. Like we're service providers. Yeah. We're not um, um, only crime fighters. We're problem solvers, right? We're not uh, law enforcement officers. We are providing police services. So we, you know, change the language. And part of that came from the community. So for us, we do all these different things. I describe it as like rungs on a ladder. So these kind of small one-time intimate events, um, sometimes they're really big and large, like having a, um, uh, like a town hall session with like 800 people in a room at Eastern Michigan University. Like we, we do all of those things in between. And, and uh, one of the things you're talking about, we call it impact, enhancing police and community trust. You get 30 officers in a room for like six hours. Y'all was there all day. 
Yeah. Right. And then you get 30 <laughs> community members, um, you know, and then you have them separate at first answering yep. questions. Um, and they're the same questions going to police and community. And then you break bread together. You co-mingle the groups over lunch and then you really share the answers. And every time we've done it, what the community is asking and what the police are asking are very similar. They're mm-hmm. again, once again, they're not they're not different at all. Like what makes a respectable officer? What do you want from your community? All those things are the same, whether you're an officer or a community member. And then we start working on solutions. Mm. Um, so that's just one of the things that we do, but we've tried to create all these mechanisms for us to yes, speak to the community, but also learn from uh, the community and at various different levels. So I'll just give you one more, one of my favorite things. And, and as far as I know, we are the only police agency in the country that has a street outreach team embedded within the agency. And so there's a lot of street outreach teams around. When I worked at a homeless shelter, we had a street outreach team, right? A lot of addiction places have like peer outreach workers and street outreach teams. But to have an outreach team of folks who were incarcerated, who get out and now work for a police agency, not to be informants, not to sweep our floors, like I always say, but to literally be the experts on community. So we pay them to be the experts on community um, and help us bridge a divide like I don't think any other... Uh, mechanism has allowed us to bridge a divide. So those are some of the very different creative ways that we start to really, I think, engage with community in ways that a typical law enforcement agency just doesn't. Wow. I think that's really good. Um, I I think I'm pretty blown away by the fact that you're the only in the state. (laughs) Um, Well, we're the the only that I know of in the country. And we ask like all of our funders and we ask the feds, like, do you guys know anybody else that has a street outreach team? Not that works with police agency, but is hired by and embedded with, has their office in the sheriff's office. And, you know, some people would say like, hey, why would you do that? Like uh, they're outreach workers. They lose credibility. No one's going to work with them. We actually find just the opposite. So if I'm a street outreach worker, separate from the police and I can work with you um, and you have a court issue or a police issue, I feel your pain. I empathize with you. I can work with you, but I'm not in there and embedded with you. So I can't really do more than you can do. But if I work at the sheriff's office and you have an issue with an officer as an outreach worker, I can call that officer up. I can go talk to the director. I can go talk to the sheriff. Um, And so I can actually help you accomplish things. And so quickly people realize our outreach workers aren't informants. We're not trying to arrest people. We really are walking that full gamut of the continuum. We got officers who are going to arrest you, but we also got people who are going to help you get your life together um, as you leave jail. So um, not that we've been able to find, we haven't found another uh, organization that actually hires people who were in jail or in prison, some that we sent to prison. Our first outreach worker, we sent to San Quentin prison for 15 years. Yeah. He got out and he helped me design the program. Um, and, wow. and really, when he came back, he was actually working to build up the same neighborhoods that at one point he was tearing down. And that's been our model ever since. That is amazing. How long have you guys been doing that? So that was the first program I started at the sheriff's office when I started there in 2009. So we've been doing it since 2009. That is great work, Derek. Um, so I, I would like to know in terms of measurement and just the data, like, is there a data collection? Are you measuring this? Like, how are you doing that? And what does this look like? So this is, uh, this is I think, our biggest initiative going forward is all the data. So, yes, yeah. I have. So we work with Wayne State University. We work, we're starting more work with the University of Michigan. Yeah. The uh, One of the gentleman who started the Harvard implicit bias study. So you may yeah. have taken that in the past. 
Um, he helped us design our implicit bias training for our officers. So I'm fortunate to work for a sheriff, first of all, that thinks the way that Jerry Clayton does, but also like his national connections to get all these researchers in to help us measure. It may sound good, but is it actually making an impact? Right. So just on the outreach workers, I'll just say this. So it really is a program that is designed around reentry. So you take people who are coming out of jail and prison, you help them civically reengage, right? Um, you pay them for that work. The, the ripple effect, the icing on the cake is what they do for the relationship in the community with the sheriff's office and the community members. But really it's about the individual. You think about this, when you get incarcerated, you are disconnected civically, can't vote, right? Can't, you know, a lot of times can't find a job, can't get an apartment because you can't get your own lease because people, you know, are shunning you. Um, we help people get civically re-engaged through the program. And in turn, what they do is establish these great working relationships, you know, with the community members. But the success of that, we are one of the, the jails that has the highest recidivism rate. Someone mm-hmm. gets arrested, they get out, they reoffend, they come back. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's one of the highest in the state of Michigan. But for our outreach workers, roughly 93% of them are successful, meaning they don't catch another case, mm. they don't relapse, they don't come back to jail, they don't violate. So some re- recidivism isn't even about catching a new case. It's just, I don't show up to my court date. So they put a warrant out for me and you know I, I violate or get a technical violation. So being able to reduce all that because people feel connected, like right, there's this positive environment and they feel like they're really doing good in their community. Um, most people are not evil, bad people, right? We're not talking about everybody out there who's just evil. These are good folks um, who had a bad day maybe once in their life. Um, and so they may have wound up incarcerated, but they are good people, uh, very smart folks, this, folks that people just haven't given an opportunity to, and we give them that opportunity. That's wonderful. These recidivism rates. Um, so I just, I heard you say that 93% of the outreach workers um, do not go back. Is that, is that how I Correct. heard you? Okay. Yep. So in terms of just general recidivism rates in at the Wayne County Jail, what percentage is that? At Washington, uh, yeah, Washington County, County, yeah, yeah. At at one point, it was up to sixty three percent. So uh, we did a study. We gave um, the researchers our data for like uh, thirteen years, and it was okay. upwards of sixty three percent. Now, mind you, just so your listeners know, there's a difference between jail and prison, right? In jail, you come to jail, you could be awaiting trial, you just can't afford to get out of jail, and so um, uh, in prison, you're obviously you've been convicted and sentenced to prison. And so there may be some folks who uh, offend, get out, and because of a technical violation, they come back, right? And that's considered recidivism. Mm -hmm. Um, So about 63% at one point, um, that's a lot of people coming back to the Washington County Jail. That is a lot. Where, where is it now? Have you, have you? So we have, we do not have the most recent update yet because the study is ongoing. So off the top of my head, I do not know. I want to say that we've gotten better and I'll give you one example. And this is goes to the researchers. Um, Wayne State University has been the ones tracking it for us. And so one of the things they've been measuring is if you create all these different rungs on the ladder, right? These different ways to help people Mm -hmm. um, when they come into the jail. But what about those things you can do? prior to someone coming in? Like, can you divert someone out of the system? Can you deflect them so they never get in the system in the first place? And around mental illness in particular, uh, what we've been able to see is just a decrease in the number of people who have a mental illness who are coming into the jail. And not only that, Rajat, for those who do make their way into the jail, a decrease in the amount of time they spend at the jail. And that's a pretty, you know, I'm getting into the weeds here, but that's a pretty important thing. Like even if somebody does hit the jail, 
you don't want them spending a long time there, right? They should really be diverted into the appropriate systems and get the right support. Um, so those are some of the initial data points that we're starting to see some movement on. That's awesome. Now, are there adequate mental health services that are in the jail? Mm-hmm. Adequate. So adequate is a loaded word. You could get me in trouble here. So so I think there can always be more. I, I would say this. For us, uh, again, our millage has allowed us to pay for it. Our, our, our values and using our budget and contracting with folks to do this work. Um, that's one of the things that I say would also be really different for us. We don't hire, say, the therapists and the mental health workers to be sheriff's office employees. We know that's not necessarily our expertise, but we do open our jail to the experts and we contract with the experts to bring them in. So we have some pretty good services. When you look at education, we have a pretty much a a, a fully functional high school for people, Mm -hmm. yes, to get a GED, but also to get a diploma. And then we're great partnerships with Washington Community College. So people can literally graduate out of our jail and go into and, and get free certifications into the community college. Um, so that's on the educational side yeah. um, and the employment side. But the same thing on the mental health side. Um, we have, I think, a pretty good program, but adequate, like I said, is, is loaded. We could always be better. And I think our ultimate goal is to really get to the point where we don't have people in the jail um, who are there for minor level offenses because of a mental illness, Right. Or even because of addiction, like, yes, you got to serve your time and do your stuff. But is there a better place for you so that you won't come back? I think that's fantastic. You guys are doing some great work there. You know, I don't always hear this uh, in the conversations on law enforcement. You know, obviously in the last year, two years, I mean, several years, you know, things have just been ramped up and it's been quite volatile. Um mm-hmm both in law enforcement agencies, outside of it, obviously. And, you know, this past summer, a lot came to a head. There was a lot of tipping points, so to speak, um, this past summer in terms of of race and uh, culture and policies and departments. And everything was just sort of converging in this this sort of just really confusing way over the summertime. I remember, um, I think I I reached out to you one time just kind of thinking like, man, what, you know, trying to put myself in your shoes. Um, just thinking like, how do you navigate this space? So, you know, ethnically, racially, um, you know, talk about that experience because that for me, look from the outside in, knowing you, having known you for years, thinking about how I know you have this compassionate heart, again, social worker first, right? That mm-hmm. kind of led you into law enforcement. Um, you know, I was just thinking about, gosh, how how is he navigating this as a Black mm. man? When you have people in your department, possibly, you know, it's the blue code or whatever it's called, you know, um, Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter. You're right in here. There's the black white conversation. You're. Do you mind if I share? Your- mm-hmm. okay, 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 yeah, yeah. For those who don't know, Derek is also biracial. Okay, mm-hmm. so mom is white, dad is black. You know, so I was just like, gosh, how? What does this even look like in the context mm-hmm. of everything? So how? How are you navigating that? I feel like it's such a unique space. You're certainly one of a kind in terms of the role that you have and just the person that you are. How are you navigating that space? So that's a that's a great question. I think um, duality is the word that I use often, right? And I think from growing up uh, in Inkster, primarily African-American community with a white mother, then getting shipped off to a primarily white school over in Taylor. You know, I just got to see all these dualities, right? Going back to the neighborhood and seeing things. So um, 
I've always been able to see the good in folks, but also know that like even amongst folks who love you, there can be bias, right? Uh, mm. You can have people in your own family who would die for you, but yet they don't understand certain things of your culture, right? And that's just, so think about that, right? And a lot of people like to say, well, they're just, you know, they don't get it. Mm -hmm. But you can literally have somebody who loves you, um, uh, a cousin or a distant relative who um, just doesn't quite understand the cultural differences, right? And so I got to walk that line back and forth all the time, right? In school, in the household, in the neighborhood. And I think that prepared me just from a young age of like, seeing the duality. I can see the good in law enforcement and see what needs to change in law enforcement, right? I can see that all the things that I at one point thought like social, law enforcement shouldn't be involved in, regardless of what I thought they should be or not, they were already involved in it, right? I just explained, we just talked all the things about mental health and all that. Like sure. law enforcement is a part of that, whether we want to admit it or not. Um, and so we might work to get them out of it, but as it stands today, Law enforcement is a part of that. Like law enforcement becomes the default catch-all um, in communities. And so I can see and say law enforcement is an honorable profession. I can also see and say the history of law enforcement is a racist history, right? From the slave patrols, we law enforcement has been used as the tool to enforce racist laws and policies. Mm. So I can see both of those. And I can say, on one hand, the history of it. On the other hand, it's an honorable profession if used right, if the tool is used right. Um, and I think just from a young age, I was able to see that. I can see both sides of lots of different issues. And that lets me see that people are complex, yeah. systems are complex. Um, and although a lot of times we want to think about the quick, fast answer, let's just do this. Let's just defund the police or let's just make this oversight committee. Um, it's much more complex than that. And I think there's much more conversation that goes into it. Yes, we need to get to a certain point. I think we can all agree on that. But how you get there, I think, is, is just as important. Hmm. I think that's good. Um, let's talk about, and I'm not huge on this, but let's talk about sort of the media um, in terms of the spotlight that is on law enforcement agencies. Do mm -hmm. you feel or believe that you guys get a bad rap, a worse rap than maybe you should? And I'm speaking generally here. Yeah, um, right. You know, do you feel like you get a bad rap or, or, or the worst rap <laughs> when compared against the community, everyday citizens. Um, yeah, we'll keep it there. Everyday citizens. Do you feel like you get a bad rap? That's a great question too. So I think, um, you know, so Sheriff Clayton says this all the time. He's like, we're the only profession that legally has the right to take what we value most, our freedom, liberty, um, and a life. Right. Like under the law, an officer can use deadly force in this in certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. So with that, because we're the only profession, civilian profession that can do that, mm -hmm. then, yes, we should have heavy scrutiny. Right. Like if you don't like your plumber because yeah. your plumber is treating you bad, guess what you do? You don't call that plumber. You get a different one. That's right. If you don't like your police officer, mm -hmm. what do you do? Right. And so I think we deserve the heavy scrutiny. The other part related to that is, I mean, when you look around the country, let's just be real. There's been some heinous, horrible things that happen. Now, I often say and I say to the folks that I work with, that person is not a real police officer. The person who did that mm -hmm. just made your life, my life and everybody who really honorably wears the badge a lot harder. Right. They weren't us. Now, they might look like us. They might wear the uniform, but they ain't really us. Um, and I think that's a, a, a key narrative that doesn't get talked about in the media. I make sure to share videos and talk about articles with our staff just to get their perceptive perception. Right. Um, and it's very interesting. It is not very different from the general population. 
Um, and so I think, again, you get a couple of union reps from one of the big cities who gets on TV and they make everybody look horrible. Right. Um, uh, but when you get to your everyday officers and you start having the conversations, I think, again, you can make these generalizations. But like, how do you actually then, like the event you came to, really start to get people in front of people to have dialogue and discussions? Mm -hmm. So do I think the media is unfair? Sometimes I think it's unfair. Mm -hmm. um, like certain events that happen, uh, I know people get upset when officer says, well, we just got to wait to see all the facts. Well, sometimes you do. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes you can see the facts clear as day, uh, you know, and it is what it is. And so mm -hmm. I think that not every situation is the same. Um, yes. So, Okay. Um, do you, wait, sorry, I wrote something down and can't read my own writing here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you talk to your officer? So, okay, how can I phrase this? Because I'm trying to be sensitive to to who you are and, and, and I- Dog, uh, just go on, just give it to me, just give it to me. <laughs> okay, have you, okay, in the department, um, I'm going to assume, and I'm not one for assumptions, but I'm going to right here, I'm going okay. to assume that there are moments- that some officers maybe have towed a line that was completely um, irresponsible. We'll use that word. Okay. And my question in terms of accountability, and I'm not talking hierarchical accountability, yep. accountability I'm talking about partnership, partnered or lateral accountability. Does that happen? Um, you know, obviously, again, from the outside in, we see news reports of yeah. video footage of right and a lot of times we don't see partners or anyone else involved sort of being the person to stop what might be a little aggressive a little more aggressive than what needs to be or you know if somebody's kind of going left they're not being reeled back in sometimes from what we can see and yeah. so I often, when I see that, I'm wondering to myself, like, okay, who's holding this person accountable? Like, how are you okay in the field watching your partner do this? And I understand, you you know, there's this whole political, you got to save face and you don't want to mess up something or who knows what the relationship, the actual relationship uh, between the partners are, right? Mm -hmm. um, my, I guess my question is, do people call each other out? So the question is yes, right? So I, I, the answer is yes. I'll say this. I can't defend the indefensible. So some of those things you're talking about, right, that we see, like that's indefensible. And it's just clear and obvious okay. that people did not do what they needed to do. But I would say this. What happened way before that incident in the agency to set the culture where someone could stop someone from going down that path or where even administration and their supervisors could identify that behavior ahead of time. Because by the time it gets to what you see on national television, it's way beyond, right? That's not the first situation. It's like a thing, something usually that has happened. So I, I'll give you a couple of examples. Please. You gotta create a culture within an agency where it's okay to question someone, to coach someone, just like, you know, you an athlete, right? You get yep. coached all the time. And just because your coach says you didn't, you know, you ain't shooting that jump shot right, mm -hmm. or, um, uh, or you didn't come out those starting blocks the right way, that doesn't mean you're horrible or they don't respect you, right? You got to create an environment where you can coach and challenge folks and people can be built up. And I think what we have tried to do is just that. So it goes all the way back to what are the competencies and how you hire someone. So if you're only looking for the person, you, we got this great question uh, that one of our commanders of the jail used to always ask. So we do these, before someone gets hired, it's a senior management interview. It's the last step in the hiring process. And one of our jail commanders used to ask the question after the 
applicant would take a tour of the jail, they would say, hey, what did you like about our jail? And if the person answered, oh, you know, like uh, those locking mechanisms and when you do this or do that, like in central command, the person is thinking about how I incarcerate people and just lock them down. Mm -hmm. If someone says, man, I was actually shocked at like how much programming you offer or how you got that one female officer in there with 30 men, incarcerated men, like, you know, how do y'all create a culture? You know, those kinds of things. Then we know the person is looking deeper than just incarcerating people. And that's the kind of values you want because you, you can teach people certain things, but if they come in the door with certain values, you know, you got the right person. Mm. So I start with that, Rajat, is like, it comes back to that. Now let's just talk about what you said, accountability. When I promote someone, what kind of person I'm promoting is saying a lot to all the young people on the force, all the people who want to get promoted. Mm. And that supervisor now is the person that is giving them direction. So what if I promote the person who is thinking about these issues like you or I, who everybody in the agency knows is the stand-up officer yeah. who doesn't do the things that you you know assumed or alluded to in your question. Mm -hmm. Now, when that person is in a supervisory role, they're setting the standard and questioning their staff early on and teaching their staff and building them up so that it never gets to the point that you're talking about. Gotcha. And I think that's the piece that is really, really important that often doesn't get talked about. How do you hire? How do you promote? Hmm. Um, we have systems in place where all of our command staff have to review randomly, not because a complaint came in about Rajet, mm -hmm. but just because randomly we want you to start pulling these videos. And when you do, just as much as you would say that was a bad thing, you should also be telling your staff, I liked how you talked to that person. Mm -hmm. Even though that person was mad at you for the traffic stop, I like how you treated them with respect. And these are the words that you say that I think are valuable. Like when you can do that, you start building a culture of respect within people. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's an important piece for us. I think that and, is wonderful. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Continue. No, no, no. So just to get back to your original question, like, is there that you got to build a culture where that's acceptable? If you have a culture where that's not acceptable, where why are you questioning me and I'm an officer and I have this authority, um, then you're going to wind up with some of those issues that you don't even catch. And then before you know it, an officer is 15 years into their career and there's all these things that have happened. And then you wind up on the national news and people are looking back saying, y'all should have known that 10, 15 years ago. So, again, how you hire and the kind of competencies you're looking for in a person. Um, if you come in valuing community, that's you're in a much better place for me to train you all the officer kinds of related safety things that I need to train you. than if you're someone who just doesn't value people. Got you. I think that's great. Um, so you guys are creating, you said to create the culture in these law enforcement agencies. Um, I'm curious to, and I mean, this is just me thinking, I'm curious to know how many agencies, you know, on the map, across the map are actually doing that, you know, at this point in, mm. terms, of, in terms of either organically they started like this or they're sort of in the redesign because of all the buzzwords and things <laughs> that have been yeah. uh, happening. You know, it is, it's, it's really good to hear that, that you guys are, have sort of constructed that type of culture within I think that's great. I, but I'll, I'll say this. I think you can't go anywhere across this country and not be talking about what we've been seeing nationally around policing. Right. So it, that's even I'll, I say this to your listeners, because it's it even impacting some of our most difficult nuts to crack in law enforcement. Right. Mm -hmm. Because the conversation is everywhere. Now, I, I'm not naive enough to think that every agency is on the same path as we are. It's not. But I think when you have examples like ours that can be used in other places, now your listeners can go to anywhere and say, hey, there's a model that's working. 
and mm -hmm. it can speak to how your officers can be safer. So, you know, a lot of times officers want to talk about officer safety. Well, guess what? You're safer in a neighborhood when you have outreach workers like ours that can help you understand the community, right? And so to me, it, it works on both sides of the, the coin. If, I want, if I'm only about traditional policing and how to be safe, I can help you be safer as an officer. If you're about how do we defund police and get the right people there, yep, I can help you do that. And you can do both. They're not mutually exclusive. And mm -hmm. I think that's an important piece, even in our most difficult communities. And 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 the other piece, and I can talk about this forever. So give give me the cutoff. Go ahead. You get it. Because I know there's people out there who are like, man, okay, that's good in Washington, but I live in a city where their officers ain't, you know, they ain't hearing that. I guess what I would say to folks is, number one, as an individual, start to learn about your agency. So if you're in a huge agency, like the city of Detroit is much larger than all of Washington County Sheriff's Office, right? And so if you're going to attack that, it's just so large. Learning about who the precinct, uh, you know, folks are, who the sergeant is in your neighborhood or who the key people like me in Detroit. I work with some great folks in the city of in, in DPD, right, who do this work. You just don't always hear about it. Um, and I think that that's the important piece, like in your own community, like who are those officers? Start learning those things so that you can kind of get in where you fit in. So I think even in some of those difficult places, uh, there are some really good examples um, that how you may take some of the things that we've been doing and like use it in other places. Last part I'll say on it is there mm -hmm. are a lot of agencies, though, Rajat, that are doing this work. Okay. We go to this conference called Problem Oriented Policing Conference. You'll have 800 the problem oriented policing. Okay. A lot of people talk about community policing. That's great, but problem oriented policing is about focused on solving solving root causes of problems. Okay. And there'll be like 800 police agencies from around the country who are there doing this work. Wow. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of stuff good that's going on, but of course, all it takes is one incident. Uh, like like we saw with the George Floyd, and it will set you back years, right? Mm. And so it's not a one-time fix. It's a continual thing over and over and over of having to do this work. Mm. I want to talk about the hiring because you mentioned that, yeah. and I want to I talk about this because over the summer, and this is kind of when my mind was sort of mulling around with some things a little bit, um, I was I was just trying to understand how police can go from one agency mm do miserably there, right? <laughs> yes. Not the best performance review. Um, have done, you know, maybe something criminal or whatever it is, right? They then go across the country or go wherever and then can get hired by another agency, right? Because of um, immunity, right? And so what's the phrase? It's a two, it's a two word. Qualified, qualified immunity. Qualified immunity. And I think I reached out to you this summer yeah. about that as well, right? Um, so that qualified immunity, I remember diving deeply into that this summer, looking in, uh, I think my first dive was actually Kentucky because I was wondering what was going on with the whole Breonna Taylor you know, situation. I really wanted to dive into what their agency history was, right? And you know, I found some occurrences of some officers who, you know, had come from different locations and showed up there and they, you know, definitely had a lot of dings on their in their in their report, you know, or history. And I remember at that point thinking like, man, she's not going to get justice for a while because of what I just saw happening in Kentucky. I was just mm -hmm. like, this is crazy. And so I was unaware at that time that qualified immunity was a thing and to what degree it was a thing. Right. So then my next conversation was actually with an attorney just to have a conversation like this. Like, mm -hmm. hey, talk to me about qualified immunity. And she broke down some things, you know, put me in touch with um, somebody that works for a prosecutor's office, you know, and I was just like, man, this this is kind of wild. So in terms of 
hiring, and I mean, you can only speak obviously for yeah. you know, Washington. Um, when you guys are hiring, if you see something that is a stain or some type of criminal activity, um, yeah, I'm just gonna call it what it is, criminal yeah. activity. How, how open are you guys to actually hiring someone like that? If everything else they did was great and then they had this mm. awful day where they made this really, really poor decision that has impacted the lives of people um, directly at their hands or whatever the case may be, how, how open are you guys to that? Because I, I'm, I'm, what I'm hearing, and I'm just going to run the question, I'll restate it if I need to, but I'm hearing that Washtenaw County, you guys have a lot of really good things in place, but I'm also realizing that you got a little bit of a, you got a heart driving some things, right? Like I, I, I see and hear the care aspect quite a bit, mm -hmm. the grace aspect quite a bit. I know that you guys come down hard, but again, you guys were my police department for some, you know, a couple of years. And I was able to have these conversations and feel like there was the care and feel like there's a heart yeah. in the pulse. So I'm just curious, you know, like, are you giving, are you guys giving them chances? What does that look like? And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, let me just say we're not perfect, right? We right. still have a long way to go. If I thought we were done, I would just be like, all right, time to go. Yeah. Uh, so I don't want anybody listening to this to be like, oh, he's just saying all the great stuff about Washington. I think we do some phenomenal stuff. Um, I, I love the, the work that I do, but we're not perfect. We still right. have a long way to go. Yeah. Um, so it is difficult when you talk about um, agencies across state lines and other parts of the country. It really comes back to the individual agency that's doing the hiring and their background process. So we catch flack sometimes because I think we have a really hard background process and we weed folks out left and right. So I think we, because we, we know this, once you hire an officer, they're yours, right? And if they make some mistakes uh, or they choose, not even a mistake, they do something intentionally, um, that's on us as a sheriff's office. And so we, I think, put a lot of stock into digging up all the dirt on someone. It takes a long time. So we lose sometimes some really good potential candidates because ours takes so long, they go somewhere else. So I know for some agencies, that's a part of it. They really want to hire people. The other piece that we don't talk about, and it talks about the complexity of it, is it also is about the money. So this is my only fear or one of my fears around the defunding uh, conversation. You know, um, I grew up in a community where uh, the police didn't have a lot of money. So yeah. when you can't pay officers, the good officers that can get a job anywhere, they're going to go and get hired somewhere else. Mm. And those officers who couldn't get hired anywhere else are forced to go and work in those places where they can't really get paid. And so I think that that starts to you know, mm. kind of uh, create some inequities in certain communities that don't have a lot of money for their policing you get what you pay for. I mean, that's just a reality in everything. You get what you pay for. So I, I just want to point that piece out. But I, I will say that um, it really comes back to the background investigation. It, it comes back to the values of that agency and the leader of that agency and what they're willing to accept and not accept. So here's the question for us where um, it, there is a balance. Certain things are just non-negotiable, right? You didn't violate somebody's rights. You didn't lie on the stand. You didn't, you know, those things, eh, non-negotiable. Right. But um, what happens when someone has some minor level stuff as a juvenile before they were, you know, an adult? Um, back when marijuana was illegal, they got they got caught um, smoking marijuana as a college student. Do we weed them out for that? Um, so I think on some levels we have really started to think differently about how we hire, but on um, other levels, um, you, you you just got to go right. This is non negotiable, and so I think that comes back to the values once again having the right people doing the backgrounds, doing the digging into it, but then also the leadership saying, we're not willing to accept that. 
Um, yep. These things we can look at and it's a person by person um, decision, uh, but other things we're not willing to, to scrap. I, I, so I'll just say this, you know, in some places, me growing up where I grew up with some of the close friends and relatives that I had um, who were involved in some of the criminal stuff. Well, guess what? In some agencies, I probably couldn't be hired, right? Because you start going in that background, right. you lived with somebody who went to prison, they're yes. going to be like, mm. for us, if I live with somebody who went to prison and I stayed on the right path, that's actually saying something positive about my integrity, my values, right? I was around all this nonsense that I could have went down this path. Absolutely. But even in the midst of that, with the loved ones around me doing dirt, I stayed on the right path. Mm -hmm. um, so we look at that differently than maybe some of the other agencies would. And I think that also goes back to culture and race. You know, for a lot of us as Black folks in particular, we happen to grow up in certain communities where that was all around us. So now you want to go through a background process where they're weeding you out left and right because you grew up in a community where that was around you. You can see naturally where you start weeding out communities of color. Um, so, so that's where that com that conversation, I think, on both levels. Some mm -hmm. things are non-negotiable and some things we really think a little bit differently. I love that. Thank you. Um, you know, you made a really good point about the communities, you know, and so again, Inkster, you know, it was, it didn't have the the greatest finances, right? Mm -hmm. And so you made a fantastic point that I really hadn't thought about in terms of the whole context of defund the police, right? And it's like, okay, but if the agency is, is small and you don't have a lot of funding coming in uh, as it is, then what, you know? And so I think that that's a great uh, that's a great point. I think it's something for us to think about, you know, when we are maybe some of us are so bold to just be out here, like defund the police and not really have any strategies for it. Right. So. Uh, well, look, so I, and I'll tell you, this is a real life example that happened over COVID. Okay. During COVID, rightfully so, we started letting people out of the jail who weren't violent offenders. You know, they can be out um, and not a harm to community. But if they were in jail, they were at a risk of helping to perpetuate COVID and getting really sick. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Rightfully so, we started reducing the population. The judges started reducing the population. Okay. Rajet, we had people in the parking lot who couldn't get into a treatment facility, who could not get into the homeless shelter because, you know, when COVID hit, everything shut down. And what that showed me was, yes, we can start transitioning people out of the system, rightfully so. But if you don't have the community services available, yeah. then people were literally on the street. And so it was just an example that I think the light bulb for me went off, which was like, yeah, you can start doing that transition. But at the same time, you better start building up those community systems mm. to be ready um, uh, to do that level of work. Wow. Wow. I'm sorry. I'm, I am processing, not just writing. <laughs> it's all good. Hey, look, I told you I could talk about this forever. We could be on it. this call. <laughs> I love it. Um, and I'm just, I am processing deeply. That just hit me. It kind of shook me a little bit because I didn't, you know, I've not thought about it. You know, there's so many things that the entrance of COVID overshadowed, right? Yeah. Um, obviously it's huge and the attention needed to be there and continues to need to be there. Um, but that, that odor overshadowing effect of, no, there are people out here who, who were, you know, exonerated or let out and now they don't even know what to do you know yeah. and so i think i think that's huge because obviously that 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 lends them right back to you know situations that are compromising for them um a lot of people don't know this some people do um i was raised an only child but i have siblings that are my half siblings and one of them um has spent the majority of his life in and out of prison and um uh, he is out right now, I believe, you know, he's had just struggles. He was introduced to, you know, some addictive behaviors really young when he was a baby, like pretty much like toddler 
you know, and has just had some struggles, you know, through his life, right? And just, I have seen, you know, so in terms of recidivism rates, right? Like I know what that looks like from a personal standpoint, right? Um, because he's just been in and out, you know, he'll get the resources, he'll get help, you know, from the halfway houses and, you know, some really good programs and then boom, right back in or, you know, with whatever the case may be. So, mm-hmm. you know, this conversation right here certainly, you know, hits home a bit. It is personal, you know, and I often think about um, just, you know, the type, the quality of what services might be um, offered, you know, in the system uh, or in, you know, in, in, your, in your case, this the outreach teams, right? Which mm-hmm. I think, it's just fantastic. Um, so I, I appreciate you sharing these. Uh, this is such rich information with us. Um, so can I can I give you an analogy just to jump back for a second? Um, mm-hmm. You're talking about the systems um, and COVID. Mm-hmm. So the analogy I like to use is for any skyscraper that was built and you want to demolish it, right? You need just as many architects to demolish it as you mm-hmm. do to build it. Because you need to know its vulnerabilities, its strengths. Um, you need yeah. to know uh, where the dynamite needs to go. You need to build alternative systems to move your stuff out of that building into the new one. You need mm-hmm. to do all that before you ever place your first stick of dynamite and hit detonate. If you just run in, throw dynamite all over the place and hit detonate, you're probably going to kill some folks. You're going to you're going to tear some stuff up. And I think about it the same way around the defund police movement. Mm-hmm. Yes, things need to shift and change, but if people just want quick action. Well, guess what? You're going to be making all kinds of mistakes and you actually might might wind up harming the people you say you care about the most. Um, And so I've been able to kind of see that from the inside lens of like, there's a lot of things that law enforcement probably shouldn't do, right? We should be, uh, the the other service providers should be doing, but if you just pull the trigger when those social workers ain't ready, I I, I teach at Eastern Mm -hmm. as an adjunct to social workers. and And I say, look, our best police officers would be great social workers. Mm. Our best social workers wouldn't necessarily be great police officers. So we need to prepare our social workers to be working at that level of the field Mm -hmm. to be able to do that crisis response. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. you're going to just set those social workers up for failure just as well. And oh, by the way, just as we do in law enforcement, have all kind of racial uh, and racist stuff, social workers, read your history, right? There's some stuff in there about our service providers as well. And you can look around many communities and look at the disproportionate contact um, around Black folks and mm-hmm. people of color and how they're not getting the same level of service in these human services. Um, and so it's not just going to be, a, oh, it's going to be all better. Uh, so anyway, much complex. We could talk, we can have a whole another show about that, that social work side. <laughs> I love that, though. This is, you know, it's so informative because I know that our listeners, um, several of them may not know all these sort of nuances, right? I I certainly didn't. And I'm, you know, I do have some knowledge of social work and some other things. And, and this is still sort of the weeds for me, right? It's yeah. kind of like, man, like, I didn't know all of this was part of, um, you know, a, a law enforcement agency, or at least adjacent, right? Like, I just didn't know sort of how the hand fits in the glove as it pertains to that. Um, so I'm appreciative, definitely, of this conversation and just what you've shared. Um, a couple of things I want to touch before we wrap up. So one, I've got notes. If you can see, this, these are my notes. You see all the things, like all, all of it everywhere. <laughs> and this is why I get lost. Um, in terms of getting uh, involved in the community, right? Mm-hmm. So, because here's the thing. What I see often, something happens, or maybe something doesn't, you know, but there's a lot of noise that we make as a community. Because that's, that's our human nature. We talk about the things that we're impacted by or that we see happening. Um 
But a lot of us don't take action, right? So we make a lot of noise, but we ourselves do not get involved. And I, how can, I want you to admonish the people <laughs> to be a part of the community. I think it's so important and we make so much noise and we sometimes do not show up. Yeah. Yeah. But, but we got a lot to say and don't vote and we not voting and this, that and the other. And yeah, you know, we F the police and all the things. But but we're not we're not showing up to the table. We're not yeah. showing up to have the conversations or be part of the focus groups or or submit, you know, your ideas on maybe a bill that could get passed in legislation. Like we are not having those conversations regularly. So how do you admonish or, or I want you to admonish the people like talk to people about getting involved in the community, you know, this coming from a social worker side, but also, you know, a law enforcement, like an officer side, how, how can you encourage them, us to do that? Yeah. Well, I, you know, um, sometimes people will say, well, you work for the system mm-hmm. uh, and the system is just corrupt. So you work for a corrupted system. Okay. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, if the only thing we do is on stand on the outside of the system and bang on the door and protest mm-hmm. and March then guess what? The people who are on the inside are just going to build up bigger doors, stronger walls to keep us out. So for some of the folks who are listening to this, some of us need to get on the inside and help to cultivate this work from the inside, but then also open that door and let other folks on in to have that discussion. So not saying that one is better than the other. They're both needed, right? I've told people who are marching in the streets, I say, you know, you made my job easier. They kind of laugh. It's difficult and it's uh, complex because I spend a lot of time as the face of our agency, like dealing with some of that backlash. So it doesn't feel good. Don't get me wrong. But in some ways, we're able to have certain conversations because the community expectation is shifting and changing. And that has only happened because I think people have been marching and being very vocal. Uh, But if that's the only thing we're doing, then guess what? You may have started the discussion by that. But if you're not at the table to talk about what those new solutions are, that means other people are making decisions for you. Um, I'll be honest. One of my pet peeves, I've gone to so many council and board meetings. And when I see folks... um, who claim they represent us Mm -hmm. standing up and saying, I'm speaking for those fearful people, those poor folks, all those people who are, who don't have the resources to get here. Um, I get sick to my stomach because my neighbors, you know, they're not scared, right? They'll tell you what they want. Right. right? Uh, Now, just because they're not at your board meeting doesn't necessarily mean there's anything wrong with them. That just means your board meeting ain't really attached to the people who you need to really attach to. Mm -hmm. And so I guess what I would say is to folks is, you know, it's a two way street. If I extend my hand as a law enforcement agency, an officer, um, and you just look me up and down and don't extend my hand, then of course, what what am I going to think? And as a community member, if you extend your hand to me, what are you going to think if I don't extend it? So it really is extending both ways for us to make any progress. So for those people who would like to talk, I call them the Facebook prophets. For those (laughs) folks who want to be on Facebook just posting stuff, um, we see you when you really ain't out there. Yeah. We see you when, you know, you say something and then all of a sudden you kind of disappear off of Facebook. Yep. Like it takes real action. This work, it didn't happen yesterday. It's not going to change tomorrow. Like this is an ongoing struggle, both in agencies and externally, both as officers and as community members. It's not one or the other. So when I go to these events and I see people from the community talking, but they don't want officers there, I say this is doomed, mm-hmm. partially because you can't have a relationship with only one partner there. It really has to be this. And this is even for my abolitionists. And I got some abolitionist friends, right? Yeah, you, yeah. Probably, you probably seen them posting yeah. on my Facebook. 
Absolutely. I get you. Like you want to get to uh, abolishing the police and all that. Okay, that's fine. But I often say like, that's not going to happen tomorrow. And mm-hmm. so until you get what you want, how do we work together down this path mm-hmm. to make sure officers are doing what they need to do to stay safe and are doing their piece of the puzzle and then community resources are there to do their piece. Um, again, I guess I can end by saying that I feel like a lot of times we're all saying the same thing, but speaking very different languages. Mm-hmm. And I get to kind of be that translator in between. Um, and if there's a way to have people sit down at the table, I think what people wind up seeing is it's not just the uniform. Mm-hmm. I have walked into a gas station where I fill up my car with gas many times and I know the person who works there. Yeah, I got on my uniform and I walk in there and he don't even know who I am. Like that uniform changes how people view me. Even me and the way that I talk about and think about police and how honorable it is, it changes how people view me. Sure. It changes, Rajet, how I view myself, right? If I got my gun on my hip, mm. I've been trained so much. Like if I'm talking to you, I'm standing off with my gun away from you because right. the training, right? And so if I'm standing with a five foot distance with my gun and I'm displayed mm. like this, you even feel different Absolutely. with Derek and Rajet having a conversation in uniform. So again, I, I say that as examples because I think it goes both ways mm. from officers and community members. Wow, that's a really good um, example. I've got a couple more things. Yeah. <laughs> so on a hypothetical, okay? Yes. So here, here's the scenario. I Let's say I'm living in Mayberry. <laughs> uh-huh, I want to move there. Come on, right. I gotta, I'm going to be your neighbor. <laughs> I'm in Mayberry, right? And let's let's flip it on its head. Let's let's say the Mayberry Police Department is yeah. really aggressive. Um, let's say they have a reputation for being just absolutely terrible, racist. Um, and I live in that community. And in that community, let's say the police department is predominantly white. So let's say let's say it's about seventy percent. Okay, but the community that I live in, let's say, is 85, 90% African-American, okay? What does it look like for me to be a part of, like, so this whole, let me extend my hand, right? To this racist slave patrol, like police department Mm. in a small town, right? Where everybody kind of knows everyone. People, you know, in those small towns, they they got zipped lips, they they cover each other. They are not necessarily the most accountable, you know? Uh, to each other, how do I then step yeah. out and say, I need to create some change here and it not look like um, yeah. something that will be dismissed, right? Because I'm making noise about it as just another Black woman who's protesting about the injustices that occur systemically in our in our world, in our system. Yeah. So how do I do that? Man, woo, gave me well, let me say this. What is the price of doing nothing? Yes. Like, seriously, the price of doing nothing is just too high. Like, we have to do something. Like, at some point, someone, whether it's an officer in that agency who's listening to this, or whether it's a community member in Mayberry who's thinking, listening to this, somebody has to have the courage to say, I cannot stand by and do nothing. I have to do something. And it's got to start with this first step. And then slowly but surely it builds momentum, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's the only thing I can say to it is like somebody has to have the courage to do it because the price of doing nothing is too large for us. Mm-hmm. Um, what might it look like? 
I yep. think, you know, it can look like a lot of different things. I mean, I know some people are like, D work for the police. Now, I can't believe it, right? But let's just talk about results, right? I can go to sleep at night and look in the mirror at night and know that things are shifting in the right direction. Right. I know that even for those things that are still the same, I can now articulate it to the community in a way that they get it. Mm. Small example, when you get pulled over by the police at night, what do they do? They shine that light in your rearview mirror and it hits you in the eyes makes you feel like a criminal because you was five miles an hour over the speed limit. Well, guess what? I know why they do that now. It's for safety. Mm. If I shine that light in your eye, because I don't know who you are, Roger, when I'm walking to your car, guess what? You can't see me. Mm. I feel more safe. I'm trained that way as an officer so that you cannot see me. Not because I think you are the worst criminal on the planet, but I'm thinking about officer safety. And just that little bit of knowledge. Yeah. When The next time I got pulled over, I wasn't automatically thinking that officer, man. I, I'm, so I'm, I'm speeding a little bit, but why he treat me like I'm 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 dirt? I'm a mm -hmm. criminal. I've had people ask me that before. Mm -hmm. Why y'all treating me like I'm a criminal? It's just a traffic stop. It's about safety, and so it's, so some of it is just uh, mm -hmm. being able to not articulate that. But again, that's just the start of the relationship that it has to start somewhere. Um, so I think that's the biggest piece. Like somebody mm -hmm. at some point got to have the courage to do that, and we also got to be. We have a duty and an obligation to be truthful to our people. Right. I'm not going to tell you uh, just to make you feel good, Rajet, what it, it is or it isn't, because mm. I think that's what Rajet want to hear. I got to be honest with you. I got to be real. We also need to have some of these conversations in our communities, right, like in our neighborhoods with our people about what you should do, what you shouldn't do. How do we build up our own neighborhoods? Why is it that even at the Washtenaw County Sheriff's Office, one of the most called to neighborhoods is a primarily African-American neighborhood? Right. Not officers who are by themselves coming into the neighborhood, mm -hmm. but the community, black yeah. folks who are calling in the officers at a rate that's staggering compared to other communities. Mm. And so that's also about us as black folks thinking about what do we call the police for? In the middle of George Floyd, right? In the middle of all the protests, it was around the 4th of July, right? Like the 4th of July was coming up and guess what? We got so many calls of people complaining about their neighbors lighting off illegal fireworks. Send the police out here to talk to my neighbor. Mm. Next day, our doorstep is full of protesters around defund the police, stop sending so many police in our communities. And I'm looking at the data and I'm literally like, I got to talk to my folks because you saying it this way on one hand, but you also call in the police for these minor petty things that we need to have those conversations as, as a neighborhood, as a community as well. So I think that it doesn't only have to be the, the 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 person in Mayberry going into the officers. How about we start some of those conversations and build up the masses in our community and then use that voice to come inside? I love that. That's a great answer. Thank you. Um, okay, last two things. So what kinds of strategies? This is more personal, right? Because yeah, yeah. Culture worker. <laughs> what kind of strategies do you personally implement to balance out your full and sometimes tragic days? Man, um, that's a good one. Mm. I would say that um, for me, it's family, right? Mm. Uh, you know my family, so I'm big on family. Um, love my family to death, so it's family. It's just being home. I ride motorcycles to get away from people and be quiet. I go in my backyard, my little oasis to be quiet because most of my days is spent nonstop, right? Responding to folks, helping folks. Um, I'm not out there on the road like a, a deputy who's responding call to call to call, but I, I do all the media and share all the stories and I get the calls from the moms yeah. who just lost their son and stuff like that. I sit in the hospitals with the kid who just got shot seven times in the back. So, I, you know, I, I take on that stuff as a social worker. Um, so I think it's just family. 
being able to disconnect and stay connected to other parts of the life of things that I like to do. But also some of it is just um, it gives you a different appreciation um, of life because you realize literally you see how fragile life is. And so you just got to appreciate every day. That's awesome. Uh, in terms of your work as a social worker within, so interdepartmentally, um, do you have the hat of social worker to your coworkers? Is that a thing or is that a boundary? Mm. You can't uh, it's funny because I get a lot of people who will sit in my office and be like, I'm here for my session. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll leave my copay <laughs> on the door. Um, but, you know, I think it is. Yes. And I think this goes to a social work mindset and philosophy, not just a social worker doing a social work job as a therapist. Right. So how I supervise, how I think about people, how I think about my community, my agency is from a social work perspective. Okay. So I'm always open to talk to people. I'm always open to be questioned. Um, I'm always open to not necessarily put my personal values on someone, but understand where that person is first and then work down a path. So I think that just comes through in supervisory and in my peer relationships at work. Um, and that's the beauty, I think, of social work. Um, it's just the social work philosophy, I think, can be used in many different situations. Okay, awesome. But am I the therapist of, of the folks at work? No, I'm not the <laughs> therapist. I might be the sounding board sometimes, sure. but definitely not the therapist. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And then lastly, I just want you to, I want to highlight, we're, we're, we're over time. There's no mm -hmm. overtime. It's my time. This is my time. <laughs> People can tap out if they want to. But um, in terms of, um, we're just shifting. So, my Brother's Keeper was an initiative that mm. I remember was implemented under uh, the Obama administration. And I actually had a dear friend who was working under his administration, um, kind of spearheading and leading that effort um, during that time. And so uh, I, it was really cool for me to know that you were also involved um, in a local chapter of My Brother's Keeper. Can you tell us a little bit about that, how some people might want to get involved in that um, a little bit? That would be great. Yeah, so you're right. So Barack commissioned the um, uh, a study around young men of color. Mm -hmm. And then what came back were these recommendations and it, you know, developed into my brother's keeper. And then he put a call to action and he asked communities to say, we need you to step up to the challenge and be my brother's keeper and do these things and implement these things in your local community. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always proud to say that Washtenaw County was the first county in America to take mm -hmm. up that mantle and that challenge. And we did it years ago. Um, and now I'm on the steering committee and the planning committee with a great organization of guys and we do some great events, but also we're about shifting narratives around the same thing, right? Narrative shifts. Mm -hmm. That's one of our goals from Washington, my brother's keeper is uh, shifting the narratives of what people see about and think about the contributions of uh, black boys um, and black men in Washington County. And so we're about policy shifts, but we're also doing some uh, great community stuff as well. So whether it was giving out supplies um, during COVID times to the, mo the folks who needed it the most, whether it's holding our, you know, uh, monthly breakfast and helping to educate ourselves, um, washing on My Brother's Keeper um, is a pretty cool thing to be involved in. It's the only thing that I know of. It is like the, pre the preemptive um voice of uh, men of color in Washtenaw County. It may not be like that in other communities, but in Washtenaw County, it's like the place to come mm. where you can love on brothers, laugh with brothers, support one, intergenerationally kind of pass on stuff to the younger generation and they pass on stuff to us. Okay. Um, so it's great. We just did a, pr uh, a premiere of our documentary. So there's a great uh, project. It's called Formula 734. Um, it is a documentary about uh, black boys in Washington County, but they actually made um, a soundtrack to go with it. So part of the documentary is just these young men 
talking about what it's like to be um, uh, a black boy in Washington County, but also and uh, making music along the way. And so it's a phenomenal production. I got chills like four or five times throughout the film. Just just some of the profound things that these young men said. And then the album is dope. So um, you, you, you know, Athletic Mike Lee, you ever heard of Athletic Mike Lee? AML, come on, I'm a couple years older than you, but you heard of Athletic Mike League. I don't know, I would have to. Oh, okay, listen. Your yeah. listeners, go Google Athletic Mike League. One of their key members from AML is the director of uh, My Brother's Keeper here in Washington. So he's all, you know, he's into the music scene. And so we got some great musicians and teachers and educators in our group. And so the album is not just the album of kids, like it's a dope album. I'm, I'm bumping MBK when I go down the street. So nice. just so you know. So okay. the album in the documentary, I think is just great. I say for anybody working with black boys or who loves black boys um, or cares for black boys, like you got to see this film. And so you put the uh, formula734.com, you can actually see uh, when the next screen is coming up um, and you can buy the album. So it, it, it's, it's just great work. And so we're just streaming the album. Is that how this is working? You can scream, stream it. And it's a donation that goes back into the work if you want to make a donation, but you don't have to. That is awesome. I'm just kind of looking a little bit. Everybody, be sure to look at this website. Um, it, it's got some rich uh, information and just some really cool. I mean, it's got nice graphics from what I can see just from. Hey, they did it right. So let me just say, I, so basically they went in there, this group of older men work with these young boys and they gave them a topic. Let's talk about love for the day. Right. And as they're talking about love or let's just talk about what it means to be a black boy. And as they talk about these, these themes come up and then they made this whole album around mm -hmm. these themes. So it was group work while they were making the album. And again, we're talking about professional artists who are working with them. So the That's quality wild. is just awesome. Um, and the exposure they've gotten so far has just been pretty awesome. That's a wonderful idea. I love that. Yeah, man, that's awesome. Okay, well, I appreciate you sharing about them and just your work with that. How often do they meet? Um, well, I meet with them every week because we, you know, okay. on the steering committee. But the uh, the breakfast is the first Saturday of every month, and and okay. we've been doing it throughout COVID. We've had some great guest speakers. The lieutenant governor was on there. Oh. Uh, we've had some folks from like U of M basketball team have been on there in the past, just to, you know, get the kids involved. Okay. So we always have guest speakers, and then we just have a good time like we laugh a lot play some good music we got some right. great zoom games and hopefully um pretty soon COVID will subside and we can get back together um mm -hmm. and be face to face how can someone get involved with it if they're interested and they live in washington county yeah they should um we got people to even come from other counties so okay. even if you're not in washington but if you go to formula734.com there's a link right on there to get to washington my brother's keeper or you can just google uh, Washington, my brother's keeper. We have a website. We got a Facebook page. There's a all kind of social media stuff. And so once you get connected into uh, any of those, um, just send us a quick email or email me, and I'll make sure you get connected in. That is amazing. And then, do you guys meet with other chapters at any point? So we went to the national convening. Barack was there. Steph Curry was there. John Legend. It was, it was awesome to see all these brothers from all over the country doing amazing work. Yeah. Um, there is a Detroit chapter. I think there's a Flint and Grand Rapids chapter. Um, we don't meet regularly because of COVID. Um, sure. Right. But we're all, I think, in our own different ways, doing some pretty cool work in our own communities. Yeah. Okay. But there hasn't been a collective, so to speak, where you guys are all sort of getting... There hasn't been one in a while. I think it was two years ago when we did the National Collective and the Detroit group was there. Um, we did one three years, three or four years ago when we did a statewide one. So we had the state collective together. But it's been a while since we got all the MBKs together. Okay. Um, but if you look on the National My Brother's Keeper site, you'll be able to see where your local chapter is. So like if somebody's in a different community, 
and they want to lump into my brother's keeper you can search for them on the national my brother's keeper site fantastic and i'll make sure that i have that up on the page um just lastly <laughs> before we wrap um you know i'm again i know that you guys aren't perfect no one is perfect no agency is perfect yeah um but I, I do love what I hear in terms of what it seems. Uh, it seems that you guys are very much a trailblazer in a lot of ways and a model for so many other um, agencies. And, you know, I don't know how many agencies are looking at you guys um, to kind of shape themselves, you know, after sort of the model that you guys have developed and constructed. Um, I, look, I think the work that you guys do uh, is great. And, you know, I am I'm a fan of it, so to speak. I mean, I don't know that I'm a fan, per se, of, of uh, law enforcement. Because right. yeah, you're still locking people up, right? I get you know, it. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a balance. There's you know, a balance. There's, there's that duality. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I'm, look, I'm not an F the police type chick, you know, and it's interesting because you you know how outspoken I am and how I'll stand up for some things and be pretty loud in my expressions um, when it's something that, you know, I believe is substantial and, and on purpose, right? Yeah. Um but I know that there are definitely times <laughs> that I've choked back the F, the police because I'm feeling it uh, in my heart, right? And, you know, even in, in the summer when there was that Washtenaw County occurrence, right, that I remember kind of happened right, I think it was maybe the same day as Floyd or the, the night of or something. And I remember, I like almost threw my phone, right? <laughs> like mm -hmm. I was just like, this cannot be, this is like my squad, like this cannot be, yeah. right? I was I was hurting and feeling some kind of way, didn't know what to really do with the emotions. And obviously we were only seeing one side of it, right? Because we were seeing what, you know, um, the, the videos had captured. But of course, again, you know, this is why I asked you the question about media. Um, because we didn't know, we didn't know the full story, right? Um, in some cases, obviously, and I'm not talking about Washington right now, but obviously in, in many of the occurrences, as you said earlier, you know, some things are just straight up, like we see it, you know? And um, I think it is just so, I, I think it's great the work that you guys are doing, because even in that situation that occurred over the uh, summer, I remember just how you guys got out in front of it. Like you were definitely speaking to it and making sure that some things were were clear. And Sheriff um, uh, Jerry was, you know, Clayton was was definitely, you know, just just speaking out about what you guys are doing on from the inside out, right? Because I know you guys were catching, y'all were catching some heat mm -hmm. <laughs> at that time. I was watching, <laughs> um, but I, I just so appreciate the work that you guys are doing. I want to just encourage you to continue, you know, to just do the greatness that you guys are doing. I know that the person that you are, obviously I grew up with you a bit and, you know, it's so great to see you in that position because I at least know that I know somebody mm. <laughs> who is making yeah. actionable for real measurable change. And it's not just talk. Yep. That makes me really happy for you to be a black man in that position. Um, you said it, you hit the nail on the head earlier when we started that, you know, your, your background has prepared you for this. Like I really truly believe like you were created for, mm. you know, it's such a, it's such a niche role. Like, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're in this, space like a liaison between community and law enforcement you happen to be a black guy right mm -hmm. With, who is also someone who thinks and processes through a social work mindset and i think that is incredible so keep that up um you know prayerfully other law enforcement agencies across the map will look at some of the things that you guys are doing and, and consider it maybe that racist mayberry 
Okay, this is not Mayberry in real life. I'm not trying to get sued or anything. <laughs> that we spoke about 30 minutes ago. Um, the races, Mayberry, maybe, you know, at that point, we can see, you know, some change in those communities for the better. So I just appreciate you so much for just joining the conversation. Um, and just, you know, I know your life is busy for real. Y'all listen, this guy is the hardest guy to like catch up. Oh, with. goodness. Boy, he's so hard to <laughs> I'm like, do I have to just drive to, to the area? Not <laughs> but I appreciate your time and your efforts. Thank you so much. If there's anything, one last thing you want to leave with anybody, this is your time. If not, we're good. Well, no, I, I loved it. It's a great discussion. Thank you for, you know, kind of taking this out to the people. I yeah. think that um, I often feel like I've discovered this secret because I have been able to see things from the inside as well. Um, and I can't yell it loud enough for people yeah. to really hear about. Right. So this is just another platform to help people really see it. And you said it, we're not perfect. We had our own situations. Um, and I think that uh, anyone listening to this, they shouldn't think that uh, we're perfect. But I do think that um, we can be an example of possibility. And so whether you are an officer that wears the badge or somebody that fears the badge, hopefully some of these discussions can help you think a little bit differently around what that badge can represent or should represent. Mm, that's awesome. Thank you. Listeners, get out in your communities reach some folks, sit down, go to some of these um, focus groups if they're offered in your local uh, in law enforcement. I know there's sometimes um, groups that, that have been meeting up and certainly pre-COVID, you know, um, just so that you can learn, you know, what was going on in the community and what type of community policing efforts were happening in your communities, right? Every community doesn't have it built in, but I certainly know of several. Uh, and so get involved, guys. Don't make so much noise. Just get involved and change mm -hmm. So I encourage people change from the inside out. Like, don't be outside. Get in there. Make a change. You know, you don't like it. It might you might not like it when you're in there, but create some change. And that, that's really the biggest.